So we thought like, look, this is already being done. What we're going to bring to it is branding, uh, quality. So like the cheaper you get is the same always instead of like one tastes like chalk and the other one tastes really good. Um, and you don't know if it was made in a sanitary conditions or not. Uh, and this will work really well because it's going to leverage all of the things that make franchises great, like consistency and branding and so forth. What we what we failed to really understand, though, was that... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Peter Harris. Um, if you missed part one, please go back and hear about the fund and some of the their fun investments with Spotify and all sorts of uh, exciting folks in, in previous iterations and, and now the new fund. Um, so... If we were jumping into stories for a minute, can you can you talk a little bit about your experience with Snapchat and the and the university students and the voting? Sure, sure. So we had this opportunity to look at, at Snapchat and you know, we were super pumped about it because it was a big brand and this was uh, about a year before they went public. Uh, so definitely a growth stage deal. Uh, and at the time very expensive, you know, across any way that you would measure it. Um because they just weren't generating a lot of revenue yet. Uh, but the revenue growth was was really, really fast. And it was interesting. So the way our model works is we have the students, they do all the due diligence, and we'll have a team that's worked on the diligence, and they pitch it to all the other students. So every student has the opportunity to vote on whether or not we do the deal. And if they approve it, then it goes to our investment committee for final approval. And uh, so anyways, so the team pitched it, and when it came time to vote... Uh, the vast majority of students voted against the deal, and they, and uh, and we you know we were really surprised. We we're like really like so I I went around the room and I was like okay I want everybody to raise their hand if they use Snapchat. And remember this was like the heyday of Snapchat. I know nobody really uses it today, but at the time everybody used it, and every single hand went up. And then I was like okay, well. Uh, how many of you think you'll be using Snapchat like five to ten years from now? And every hand stayed up, right? And and they just saw it as like this social utility that they were going to continue to use for a long period of time. And so then I was like, well, why are you all a no on the investment, right? I mean, it's not a fad, and you, you don't think it's a fad. And, um, and their response was like, well, you know, given the valuation, the price, we just don't think we're going to get a very good return on it. And, and that's why we should pass. And uh, so ultimately, we, my partner and I came back and we we're like, look, maybe your returns expectations are a little too high in this particular case, right? Because if you think about why venture funds make investments, it's not always about the return. Uh, sometimes uh, there can be some ancillary benefits. And for us, in this case, being able to invest in Snapchat was really helpful because it would help us recruit more students it gave us some credibility because it was we were super early in the fund i mean we hadn't made very made very many investments and so it gave us a little bit of credibility of like hey yeah we can get access to great deals uh which uh which helped us get into other deals ultimately and uh and so there was a lot of value and so once the students kind of understood one there are all these other sources of value and two 
like we weren't we didn't need to make 10 times our money to you know justify doing the deal uh, they ended up voting to do it uh, and as it turned out right i mean they they were kind of right in a lot of ways and that you know we didn't make 10 times our investment on that you know it went public we did okay um but if you know you were looking at it from their their point of view, which was all the training we put into them around you know you got to get you got to hit these kind of metrics, it didn't it didn't necessarily hit those. And so, uh, you know, it was a good example of like, hey, you know, students are pretty bright and they can work work things out and figure things out. But it was also interesting because you know, on the one hand, they were like, no, let's not invest, even though they were all like diehard users at the time of the product. That's awesome. Uh, are there any examples that you can think about with uh, marketing campaigns that you've kind of observed from the outside perspective with one of your portfolio companies that has really stood out as an innovative approach to marketing, something that, that was really different uh, and, and stand out? Yeah, so there's a company right now that we're looking at investing in that I really like. And uh, what they do is – so they sell they – sell marketing software essentially to SMB. But the challenge, if you think about selling to SMB, is twofold. So one, it's really hard because your customer acquisition cost can be really high on a per-customer basis, but then they don't pay you a lot of money. And then they're small businesses. So like, even if they love your product, they might go out of business. And so you're, the, you lose customers more frequently, right? So you have high churn. Uh, what this company is doing, and then I guess the last piece is, uh, and when you layer on the marketing piece of it, is that like so much marketing feels like fluff, and it's hard to show like a clear ROI for dollars spent on marketing. Uh, and so what this company has done that I think is super interesting is they've focused on doing really deep integrations with a few partners, and then that, those integrations allow them to have this feedback loop where they can show really clear ROI, uh, and then not only to the customer, but also to the partner. And so then the partner becomes highly incentivized to do a lot of the marketing and sales for them and push them a lot of customers, which in turn reduces their CAC. So anyways, I just think it's like a really interesting strategy that, that maybe not a lot of people would think about in terms of working with partners and having really deep relationships where you're sharing data back and forth and really creating win-win opportunities. Um, so anyways, that that's one that recently that I that I thought was was pretty smart in terms of how they put it all together. That's great. And just for people who aren't as familiar with those, you know, SMB small medium business CAC for cost of acquisition, uh, customer acquisition cost, right? Yep. Um, on that on that premise, how important is it to you that investors are signaling kind of a sophistication that they're using that type of terminology or stuff like? What does that signal to you when founders? are using the metrics the way the industry does uh, or not? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those funny things. Every industry has its uh, jargon, and, and uh, it's a way in which uh, people in the industry are able to gauge or, you know, they do gauge or judge people of whether or not they are in the industry as well. And so, you know, just like if I show up uh, in a law firm and I don't use the right terminology, it becomes really apparent that I am not a lawyer. Uh, you know, I would say if you want to play in this game, you kind of need to learn the jargon and, and know the terminology. Because otherwise, you'll come off as being, you know, somebody that, for better or worse, doesn't, you're going to be viewed as someone that doesn't belong there, if that makes sense, uh, which is not what you want, right? You want to come off as being credible, experienced, you know, you're on top of your game. 
so yeah i mean there, there's a lot of jargon uh but you know fortunately there's a lot of great blogs podcasts like this right that that can help you develop that vocabulary so that you sound competent when you meet with investors and then specifically talking about marketing um what what kind of things signal to you that the founders are more than just somebody who can create a product that is it is it only track record or what kind of things are you looking for in their ability to for you to think okay these people can scale yeah so for me it's it's from a for a founder can they attract really great people at the end of the day to me like that is like the most important thing uh to a certain extent because look as a founder you can't be an expert in everything but you you better be able to attract the experts that are right and build build them around you uh fill in your gaps if you will uh with great people and you know that that can be really tough but the founder that can do that can ultimately build like really great big businesses in our opinion uh so so we look for that um you know, I think track record is important, but I think the other piece is being able to understand a market really well and understand kind of how are you going to to solve whatever their pain is. And, and that can be beyond like I have a product that solves a pain, but like marketing in and of itself is a solution to pain, right? I You're educating somebody. Like good marketing is educating somebody. Right. And helping them see how like your product could add a lot of value to their lives. Right. And so every industry is a little bit different. Right. In terms of how you want to approach it from a marketing perspective. But having an entrepreneur that understands that at a deep level, I think, is is really valuable. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you you said earlier. And I, th I I'm also a really big fan of first principle thinking and, and try to help my team as we try and come up with campaign campaigns for clients and as we're trying to help market people to really go back to like what are the core ideas that we know are right uh, and you mentioned that you that's one of your challenges in working with college students is sometimes you have to train out of them some of these things that they've started to assume uh, what are some of those things that you found works best in helping people to kind of get over their assumptions and get back to these core principles? Yeah, so you know what's interesting is that when students join our fund, they come in and generally they think every idea is a great idea, right? Yeah. It's, it's all good, right? Wow, that's so cool. Like, look, look what they're doing with this, like, crazy technology, right? Like, they're using, like, big data machine learning to, like solve cancer and identify cancer like in its very early stages like let's give them all of our money right um and then you train them and you teach them and you're like look let's yeah that's a cool technology and and hopefully that comes to light at some point but here are all the challenges to get that from idea to market right and by the way it's not just that company that's doing it there are all these other companies so you got to look at like all of these other areas that also matter it's not just the idea right it's the team it's the technology it's the patents it's the relationships it's the partnerships it's you know all this the funding it, it's all of those things and so what ends up happening is we, we basically instill them with all this knowledge and then everything looks like a terrible deal every deal is bad right 
and uh, and so they go through this this curve of like everything's amazing, let's invest, and everything to everything sucks, and like <laughs> like there are no good deals. And uh, you know, you think about it, it's ultimately true. Like I can give you like a million reasons to kill just about any deal that you put in front of us, right? Like because they're just risks. That's that's part of the that's part of the the game. Uh, and if there were, are no risks, then there's no returns because everybody else is fighting to get in the deal and the price has gone up so that you can't make any money on it. Uh, and so then it's this challenge of like getting students to realize that yes, in s- there are risks, but in spite of the risks, venture capital is all about pricing risk, right? It's all about saying, okay, yes, there is this risk, does the potential return justify making the risk, you know, taking on that risk, right? Uh, and ultimately what we found works really well is just looking at lots of deals and then and having some sort of feedback loop, right? So it's like, here's a deal, we passed on it, it went out of business. Why did it go out of business? You know, identify those key risks, right? But then alternatively, you know, we make an investment or we don't make an investment, the company ends up being successful. We look back, why was that company successful, right? And helping them close that feedback loop and, and hopefully learn from that. So that when they look at new companies, they can approach it hopefully more from that that level of first principles and experience, which is like, hey, look, yes, there was this big risk that the current business model wouldn't work. But the team was really strong, and we had faith that the team would figure out the right business model. And and they did, and that's why I ended up becoming successful, right? It's interesting because I see such a strong tie to marketing where so many times uh, there isn't a feedback loop. I think that's almost what's so challenging about it uh, is that many of the things that happen in a startup, there is this very tight engineering uh, you know, operations, you kind of know where you're succeeding and where you're not. Um, where that doesn't exist, marketing is more soft skills combined with hard skills. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you look for as as you're looking, both in marketing but also uh, with the rest of the team, to kind of know that they're going to embrace uh, embrace the feedback? Is there certain characteristics that you're looking for that you know they're going to be able to keep changing and adapting that you're trying to identify as you look at that investment? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think when we're evaluating teams and and so forth, you know, one is entrepreneurship is this really interesting dichotomy of having to be like hyper-focused but also like flexible Right, I think Vinod Kosla said something like, "You should be, you know, very flexible in terms of how you get there, but you should not compromise at all on like the end destination." Uh, and so it's, it, yeah, it's trying to tease out through your interactions and then viewing at their their track record and so forth. Like, does the team have that mentality of like, "Yes, we know where we're going. We have strong focus there. We're not going to get distracted by a million different shiny objects." But at the same time, uh, we're very flexible in terms of we, how we end up getting to that end point, um, which, you know, again, it can be challenging because every company is a little bit different. And so you're just trying to, especially for us. I mean, we, we invest, like I said at the beginning, like we do 
consumer products and consumer tech and enterprise software and fintech and like um, uh, all kinds of different things. And each one of those operates within different markets with different dynamics. And so it's, we almost have to approach everything from first principles because like, you know, we're basically starting from scratch every time we look at a new deal, right? And, And trying to get up that learning curve. But generally, yeah, it's like, can this person, you know, are they, I guess part of it too that we look for, are they like metric driven? So if they're, if they're metric driven and they're constantly track, tracking those metrics, then hopefully they can identify where they're going wrong early uh, and start to shift and pivot their strategy uh, and, you know, figure out what, what does work for them. Is there, uh, and you may not be able to say this, and if so, we'll edit it out, but uh, (laughs) is there any company you can think of that you're like, man, I really wish I would have invested in that one, like kind of the one that got away? Uh, And now that you look back, what do you learn in thinking, man, we should have done that investment? So there is a company that I really like that... um, we didn't do uh and i still kick myself that you know we didn't do it uh in the shipping shipping industry so uh the company's called easy post you can look them up they're they're a y combinator grad really cool company uh what they do is they have a shipping api uh that makes it really easy for companies to uh, send their package through the right shipping partners to get to the destination as quick and as cheaply as possible. Um, And it's all software driven. And they are in the process, I mean, this isn't anything confidential, they're in the process of uh, leveraging all the technology they build on the software side and doing their own distribution as a 3PL. Uh, Which in some ways is crazy because you've got warehouses, super, you go from software margins to like logistics margins, which are really small. Um, there are all of these issues, right? Uh, but the thing that I think is interesting is that in, in venture startup land, there's kind of two different companies, right? So one company type is we are gonna build a tool for an industry, okay? Uh, and usually that software, enterprise software, a lot of those companies are like that, right? And, and EasyPost was like that in their beginning, right? We have this software, and we are going to sell it to other 3PLs, other, you know, whatever. We have a long list of customers. The other way to look at it is we're going to build this really great technology, but we're not going to sell it to anybody. We're going to bring it in-house, and we're going to own it, and we're going to leverage it as a competitive advantage. Now the and we're going to disrupt an entire industry, right? And and we're an investor in a handful of companies that are doing that, right? Whether it's um, Flexport or Spotify or or Lyft or others, um, but it's hard because you have to raise a ton of money to do it, and it's the margins aren't great and it's not capital efficient, and you know it's it's all of these things, and you have to. I mean, you're competing against companies that are gigantic and have been around forever, right? I mean, if you look at Flexport. I mean, they're competing against these gigantic companies worth tens of billions of dollars. Um, 
you know, a good example of that though is Amazon. So if you look at the companies that are the biggest and most successful, they're the ones that disrupt entire industries, right? Like in Amazon. Amazon does sell some of their products, but even more of their products that nobody ever talks about and knows about are the ones that they keep for themselves internally, right? So a good example of this is they bought a robotics company a number of years ago uh, to help them with their, their warehouse you know, distribution. Uh, the company had a bunch of customers. They basically shut down all those customers, cut off access to the product, and brought it all in-house to bring, give themselves a, a huge competitive advantage, right? Uh, so, it, you know, it's those kinds of things. They're really capital intensive and, and risky in some regards, but then the outcome is you get companies like Amazon that could someday be worth, you know, a trillion dollars. And so when you look at, like, like a company like EasyPost, that was – that's part of their play is they're trying to say like, look, yeah, we could be a great little software company, but we want to be something big. We want to disrupt a whole industry. We want to go from, from, you know, maybe a couple billion dollar, you know, soft or shipping API market to the like trillion dollar, you know, 3PL market and start disrupting that. Right. <coughs> so, you know, when we're looking at businesses, it, it, sometimes it's just trying to figure out like, what bucket do they sit in? And neither bucket is bad, right? But it's just understanding both because on the one hand, if you're going to invest in the one that's going to disrupt a whole industry, you got to be ready to sign up to write a lot of checks, right? And put on a lot of capital and, and cross your fingers and hope they make it, right? Um, but on the other hand, on the software, but your outcomes can be huge. On the software side, they tend to be a lot more capital efficient, um, but your outcome won't be quite as big, right? So... Interesting. You know, I know we're winding down here for, for part two. Um, I'm sure as founder of a fund, you get a lot of people who want your time and have questions and stuff. I think about when, when we raised our fund, all of a sudden I became a lot more popular, <laughs> right? Um, maybe as a final question here, what's something that people don't ask you? What's something that you're passionate about that you think more people should ask you about or something that, that you just free for all question, free for all question, message for the world or something that that you prefer to talk about that maybe we haven't covered that's a good question uh you know a lot of people uh are surprised and find it interesting the consulting work i do so uh, about once a year once or twice a year i travel to some some locale around the world and do what's called micro franchising consulting so we help uh, governments, nonprofits, uh, large corporations launch micro franchises at the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, beyond investing in companies and beyond r running this fund, like it's a way for me to be a little more entrepreneurial because we basically parachute in to places like Paraguay or Ghana or Kenya, analyze markets, design businesses um, for the poor that they can operate and then design them into a franchise uh, model uh, and and then help the, our clients scale them. So, Can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, so we did a project with uh, the Nike Foundation in uh, the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, and if you know anything about the Nike Foundation, they're very focused on girls and empowering girls. And so we were tasked with designing a handful of micro-franchises that could be operated by girls. So I spent a couple weeks, you know, roaming around the slums in Nairobi doing interviews, covering everything from sanitary pads to hair products to food. Um, 
and then, you know, looking at products and market and talking to different business owners, we ultimately ended up uh, launching two micro franchise businesses, one that sold or one that sells um, chicken based hot dogs, fast food. So it turns out fast food was, you know, in high demand. And then the other thing that I thought was super interesting is that these girls, they, they will go without food before they will go without a good looking uh, hairdo. And which was a, like a huge surprise to us. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about that, just on a side tangent, is a lot of people will be like, well, you know, what they need is solar power or what they need is like better nutrition. Like, who are you to dictate what they need? Like, they want to feel good about themselves and be self-confident, you know, and like and have this confidence and and look good. And like, that's a need and that's OK. Uh, so we designed, we partnered with uh, one of the larger hair extension um, companies there, a company called Darling, and set up these mini salons where the girls could weave hair uh, and and uh, sell the product. And it was all branded under Darling. And so they were able to leverage kind of the marketing and, and branding of the larger company, but uh, run their own little businesses as well. So, Okay, that was an awesome story. We got to have one more of those. Got another <laughs> one? Uh, sure. So I'll tell you about, um, like a, a project that we just finished in Paraguay. So we were working with, uh, Fundacion Paraguaya and the Inter-American Development Bank. And, uh, they wanted us to launch a bunch of micro franchises, uh, down in Paraguay. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. So we, we identified three, we launched them and one of them failed like immediately, like within a week or two, just boom gone and uh, and so we had to shut it down and what was interesting to me about it was that i we had done all the market analysis basically the company was selling cheapo which is this uh savory donut that uh super popular staple down there and there are people called chiperos that go around and they sell it and they typically wear like a white apron and they have a basket full of this stuff and they sell it in the buses and stuff. So we thought like, look, this is already being done. What we're going to bring to it is branding, uh, quality. So like the cheaper you get is the same always instead of like one tastes like chalk and the other one tastes really good. Um, and you don't know if it was made in a sanitary conditions or not. Uh, and this will work really well because it's going to leverage all of the things that make franchises great, like consistency and branding and so forth. What we what we failed to really understand though was that the the women that we were working with that were going to be the micro franchisees like had no interest in selling it, and so even though I think ultimately it could have still been a, like a really interesting micro franchise, it like totally failed because you know shame on us we didn't spend enough time really understanding you know our partners at the end of the day right so we had to take a step back and we spent more time talking to them and understanding their needs and their, their lifestyle and, you know, what their situation was. So a lot of these women, they have kids, they're managing a household, they're trying to earn some extra money on the side. They don't have time to go out and spend all day selling cheaper. Uh, and so, and, but then the, the other need that they had was uh, there weren't a lot of options for women to get clothing, especially like women's intimates. So we found another company that does women's intimates, partnered with them, uh, and launched relaunched a micro franchise on a catalog where the women travel around door to door in their community. They 
they share the catalogs. The women in their community can tell them what they want out of the catalog. They then send the order back with the, with payment. They manufacture it, like made to order basically, and then they they deliver it and take payment. Uh, and that one actually un- has ended up doing doing really really well. Um, which again is going back to like just understanding our partners and like their needs and like what works for them or you know where the where the gaps are in the market. So I love it. Well, hey, thanks for thanks for your time for doing this. So, if people want to find out more about the fund, where's the best place, and uh, and if they want to follow you on social or anything like that, what's what's the best places for people to connect with you? Yeah, so uh, our website is great, ugrowthfund.com. Uh, we, we put a lot of information on there about our program, our investment strategy, uh, the companies we're, we're backing and so on and so forth. Uh, and then we have an Instagram. So, you know, at you girls fund, uh, that's probably one of the better places to follow us. I post more on that than on my own personal stuff. So I love it. Thanks again. All right. Thank you.